Hello and welcome to The Selection Show. I'm Ian Heath, the news editor of Citywide Selector, and with me today I have Mick Grady, the head of investment strategy and chief economist at Aviva Investors. We're a few weeks into 2024 now, and it's an important time for fund houses to be thinking about the year ahead. So today we're going to be talking about what Aviva Investors' expectations for the global economy are and how they're adjusting their investment strategy accordingly. Uh, Mick, I understand Aviva Investors um, think global growth will be a bit slower this year compared to... Um, 2023. Why is that? Yeah, no, that's right. We do think we'll see a bit of a slowdown uh, this year. Uh, so we sort of saw around sort of three and a quarter last year, and we're looking more like two and three quarter percent growth uh, globally this year. Uh, the main drivers there, we think, are, are somewhat of a slowdown uh, in the US uh, relative to last year. I think US was probably the big surprise uh, in 2023 yeah. in terms of how, how rapidly it grew. Yeah. Uh, but we, we do expect to see somewhat of a slowdown there. We are still, to be honest, a bit above consensus, though, uh, in that view of a, of a slowdown, but a slowdown to around about uh, what we consider sort of normal or trend growth uh, in the US, around one and three quarter percent. Uh, we also think that there'll be a further slowdown in China. Uh, China yeah. um, has been pretty weak on the back end of last yeah. year, and we yeah. expect that continue uh, into this year. Um, and do you think there'll be any recessions in any regions? So we don't have a recession in our central uh, forecast for any of the major economies. Okay. Uh, and, you know, we we skirted, have skirted pretty close to um, technical recession. In fact, in the UK, we, we may um, guess a technical recession in, in the sense of having two quarters of negative growth uh, at the back end yeah. of 23. We haven't got the final data yet. But um, but no, we, we don't think in our central projection uh, that we see a uh, recession, uh, but some pretty sort of tepid growth uh, in certain regions, uh, I would say. And um, you mentioned the, the US economy doing quite well last year. Um, do, do you feel the global economy generally has sort of held up quite well compared to perhaps expectations at the start of 2023? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, like probably many forecasters uh, back at the end of 2022, we thought that there would be a mild recession in 2023. Uh, as I said, I think that was a fairly consensus view uh, at that time. Uh, so we, like others, were, were surprised at, at the robustness that we saw uh, across the, the major economies. Uh, as I said before, I mean, the US in particular, um, really, I mean, we basically saw better growth in 23 than we did in 22 in the US, which yeah. was really unexpected, I think. And if, if you sort of dig into, you know, what, why was that? Yeah, of course. What yeah. was the driver of that? Um, I, I think the big surprise there was uh, if you look at the, the sort of implied fiscal stimulus mm. uh, that came through in the US last year, uh, it was actually, uh, you know, if, if you exclude um, things like the global financial crisis or, or the COVID year, uh, it was actually the, the biggest fiscal stimulus uh, that we've seen in the US really at any time in the last 30 years, if you take those those two years out. So um, that certainly was not what anybody expected going into 23. Uh, and I think it made a significant difference. Um, you know, household spending just stayed really strong throughout the, the entire course of the year. And in, in fact, we got the US GDP data uh, for Q4 just today. And once again, it's surprised on the upside. Oh, sure, yes, 3.3% um, annualized. Yep. So, um, so yeah, lots of robustness there. I think the other thing I'd say about um, last year, which was a surprise, um, at least in terms of the, the sort of non-recession outcome, was the UK and the Eurozone. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, you've got to remember the, the sort of magnitude or scale of the shock that was faced, you know, by the UK and the Eurozone in terms of the energy yeah. increases. Yeah. Obviously, those were somewhat um, mitigated by um, subsidy and, and, yeah. and government um, policy. Uh, but it was still an enormous uh, hit to real income. It probably, you know, certainly in the UK, numbers the biggest hit in, in 50 years to real income growth. Uh, and despite that, um, your spending held up okay. I mean, 
Mm. I mean, essentially, the UK as co- the economy has been pretty flat for the last 12 to 18 months, but uh, you would have expected quite a lot worse outcome than that, uh, given the magnitude of the shock. So, so there has been resilience, even in those places where the growth uh, has mm-hmm. been pretty, pretty slow or, or non-existent. And of course, the one place which is kind of a bit disappointing for a lot of people is China. I mean, were you surprised by what happened there as well? Yeah, look, I mean, um, we, we, we thought that once the reopening started, uh, and, and you know, I'm sure you remember um, the way in which uh, the China reopening uh, came about was unexpected in itself. Yes. And uh, there was, that was expected to take much longer to, to, mm. to come about. They sort of you know, flipped pretty quickly on it. Uh, and we expected that you know, China wouldn't be that different to what we'd seen elsewhere around the world as countries reopened. Uh, mm. They had this level of pent-up demand, uh, savings that have been built up from being able to go out and spend and so on. Uh, and that that would all be deployed and you would see really a very, very strong year come out of um, China. Um, the reality was, is, yes, you did see a big recovery immediately in Q- Q1 of last year, and then things slowed down um, quite a lot uh, subsequently. Uh, and I think, you know, that just uh, sort of underlied to us, you know, this sort of really structural weakness um, uh, that, that is is um, driven by... Uh, primarily the property sector of course sure, yeah um really having such a, a huge impact also on on confidence and, and consumer and that's been quite an ongoing problem for a few years now it it has um you're right um and we can we, we think it continues so yeah it's one area where um we're a bit out of consensus if you like in terms of our growth outlook for uh for this year is uh we do think um china won't reach their um, growth target for this year, yep. 5% target again this year, we, we're weaker than that. Uh, and that's, you know, really because we sort of struggled to see um, without really much more significant police policy intervention, mm. uh, how they're going to um, be able to generate that level of growth. That said, um, you know, um, things never stay still for very long and we have actually seen um, some more aggressive yeah. intervention from the Chinese authorities just in the last week. Yeah. Uh, uh, further cut um, to the res- reserve uh, ratio requirement, mm-hmm. um, further packages to uh, support the banking system and so on. So uh, they are looking to do more, um, you know, uh, and so uh, maybe uh, that's a signal that there's more support to come. But b- based on what we know at the moment, um, we think China is going to be weaker than consensus this year. Okay, sure. Thanks, Michael. Um, okay, let's talk central banks a little. Um, what sort of, um, well, we've seen some activity today, actually, but um, what sort of activity do you think we'll see from central banks this year? There seems to be a growing consensus that we're going to see rate cuts. Yeah, uh, and, and and we agree with that. Uh, so uh, one of the sort of key investment themes we uh, highlight this year uh, uh, is the, the likelihood that we start to see uh, rate cuts um, from uh, really all of the major central banks uh, this year. Um, I think, you know, there's an op- still an open question on timing, exactly when those might start. Uh, we're minded to think it's probably around Q2 uh-huh. um, for, you know, the Federal Reserve, um, the ECB and the Bank of England, probably all in, in and around Q2, maybe Q3. Uh, so, yeah, there's a bit of a question on timing and there's obviously also a question on, you know, how, how fast uh-huh. uh, and how far um, uh, they go. Uh, you know, Market pricing currently um, is for the Fed to do about 200 basis points over a couple of years. Uh, the ECB and the Bank of England a bit less than that. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we're we're not necessarily 
in a huge disagreement with um, the market in terms of uh, the magnitude of cuts uh, expected. But what we what we know is that uh, the likelihood that we kind of have this almost perfect sort of central case soft landing, which, you know, as I said, yeah, yeah. more or less our own view, um, that delivers, you know, inflation kind of back to central bank targets uh, and policy rates coming back to what we might think of as kind of neutral, um, you know, um, it's hard to deliver on on that. You know, it, mm. it's, it's there's, there's any number of possible things that could, could go wrong um, or, or be different to, to get a different outcome to that. Okay, sure. You mentioned inflation there. I mean, how how concerned are you that you know we might see another inflation shock? Um, there, there are there are risks out there. There are. I mean, so in terms of um, the disinflation process, uh, it has gone a long way from where we were. I mean, you know, remember that um, you know last year we we're in double digits for most economies in terms of headline yeah. inflation rates, uh, and we've come down a lot since then. Um, you know, a lot of that has to do with the decline in energy prices uh, that, that has happened. Uh, well, initially the stabilisation and then uh, decline, and that's particularly uh, in Europe, for example, on natural gas prices, which have, have come down, you know, significantly from from where they were yeah. last year. And so that's made a, a, a huge impact in terms of bringing inflation further down. Uh, goods inflation, core goods inflation, um, again, it's actually quite soft now. You know, um, there's very little global goods inflation, and so. Yeah, that's largely a reflection of what's a pretty weak manufacturing backdrop um, globally, uh, and that kind of just leaves services. And services is 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 kind of the big unknown. I would say still at this stage, uh, it's still holding up, and is is really more of a function of of tightness of domestic labour markets, wage pressures, and so on and so forth. And, and those still look perhaps somewhat challenging, and maybe be the one of the reasons why uh, inflation doesn't continue falling, um, perhaps at the rate in which we've seen it um, more recently. I would just flag up a couple of things, though, um, yeah. in terms of you know what could actually get it moving back in the other direction. Because there's one thing, just if you like, to slow or stop that disinflationary process. Sure. Uh, it's another thing entirely, I think, to to say, well, could we actually see it picking back up again from here? Uh, I think in order to get that outcome, we would have to see something fairly material happen uh, with energy prices. They're usually the swing factor uh, when it comes to headline inflation. Okay, sure. Um, you know, it's obviously um, not not impossible that we could could have that um, outcome. Uh, There's a likely trigger, some sort of geopolitical thing, like straight. I mean, you know, yeah. we still have war in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you know, we have uh, all sorts of troubles, as we know, uh, in the Middle East, uh, and so it's entirely possible that we could see um, energy prices um, go back up again. Uh, we obviously are also seeing, uh, you know, shipping costs rising again now uh, as as ships are being diverted uh, away from, uh, you know, away from the Gulf. Um, yeah. So, so you know, there there are there are some risks there. I think, as you say, I think they're largely geopolitical risks. But you look at you know something like global energy markets. I mean, they are still pretty tight. So it doesn't take a huge shock. I guess that mm. is the thing to see prices perhaps go going back up again. Okay, bear in mind everything we've just discussed. Um, how is um, Aviva Investors changing its investment strategy to, you know, uh, or mitigate or reflect these trends and sort of deal with, you know, what might lie ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think probably uh, the most significant change we've made at the sort of high level asset allocation view uh, towards the end, well, sort of later on last year and, and looking forwards, 
uh, was around our view on duration. So uh, we'd been underweight duration, um, uh, had that view for okay. a, a long time, um, to two, two years, two and a half years. Um, we had an underweight duration view. Um, we uh, aren't there anymore. We, we have an overweight duration view going forwards and as I said, have, have done since late last year. Uh, and that's, you know, unsurprisingly, con you know, consistent with the view that we are moving into a rate cutting cycle. Of course, yeah. Um, uh, you know, we probably see that there's more opportunity on the duration side uh, in Europe, the UK, uh, US maybe is a bit more fairly valued, we think at, at this at this point in time. Mm -hmm. um, but that's probably in terms of um, the change from where we've been, um, the, the most notable. Um, in terms of uh, on the equity side, um, we remain uh, with an overweight equity view, you know, moderately overweight equity view, uh, again, with some differentiation by region. Um, but that's, okay. that's been more consistent. Well, you mentioned China earlier on, um, which, which you're kind of straying away from a little bit. Could you just talk us through what, where you're interested in regions-wise or maybe what your underweights, overweights might be? Yeah, no, sure. So, uh, I mean, in terms of on the, maybe we can start on the equity side, actually, on, on equities. Um, so we have a, a preference to be um, more overweight, uh, the US and Japan. Okay. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the US, uh, look, you know, um, the valuations do look pretty rich. So mm. you know, it's, it's not a cheap market by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but the earnings, we think the earnings numbers for this year are going to look pretty decent. Um, mm. If you like, we've already had the earnings recession in the US. It kind of came and went without the economic recession. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, if, if earnings can deliver this year, which we think they will, we think there's there's still plenty of scope for upside. In terms Just on the US market, what's your mm -hmm. view on this kind of um, concentration that we've had on the so-called Magnificent yeah. Seven? Do you think that's an issue? Do you think there's a bit of a bubble there? Or do you think like, a, you know, that it should be yeah. more spread out, the, the rally that we've seen? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, um, certainly for uh, a good part of last year, um, we felt somewhat uncomfortable about the narrowness uh, yeah. of the of the rally uh, in the US. Late on in the year, by Q4 though, it did actually expand out quite a lot, and so um, it wasn't just a magnificent seven story. By the yeah. time we got to Q4, when when you know we saw a lot of the rally, obviously at the sort of index level. So, um, we, if you like, felt a bit more comfortable about um, you know the ability of the market to sustain, if you like, um, uh, that momentum, uh, given it was a little bit less narrow. Uh, than what it was earlier in the year. Uh, look, you know, um, when you get these potential, um, you know, uh, game-changing moments for companies um, that, you know, AI technology might be, then, mm. uh, you know, it's very difficult to call whether that's going to be a bubble or not. Um, uh, so, you know, um, as I say, we're just sort of more comfortable that it has broadened out uh, since then. Um, but just coming back to where I was before, um, yeah. I think Japan's an in interesting one. Yeah. Um, well, look, you know, I see here today in the Japanese market's up ten percent already this year. I think, but yeah. um, uh, you know, we've we've had the view for for quite some time that there is um, significant uh, and important change going on in Japan. Yeah. Um, both in terms of the the sort of corporate governance and dynamics there. Yeah. Um, the appetite for um, increasing shareholder return, uh, but also on an, on a macroeconomic level in terms of if you like the the Defleet, de, de, uh, the defeating of deflation, mm -hmm. um, a deflationary mindset. Uh, we think that there's genuine, genuinely something changing there. So, uh, looking you know, at it's a it's a cheap market, and um, uh, I think it has you know those things going for it. So, so we like. Well, that's on the equity side, but on the bond side, on the bond side, yeah. So, I mean, um, if you like, what comes with that? Um, 
uh, if we're right, uh, mm. is what you might think of as a more normalization um, in Japan mm. uh, of bond market uh, and, and, and interest rates there. So uh, we are um, very underweight uh, Japanese government bonds. Uh, and that's really, as I say, uh, predicated on the view that if, if Japan genuinely have um, been able to exit this deflationary uh, mindset of 30 years, really, uh-huh. uh, that that gives the Bank of Japan the opportunity to actually end, well, um, we used to call them unconventional policies, but they've been going on for so long where so many central banks, yeah. they're not so unconventional anymore, but these policies uh, you know, around yield curve control and negative interest rates. Uh, we think, you know, they're in a process of unwinding those already. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that will continue. Uh, so, you know, we're expecting, uh, negative interest rate policy to end, uh, in the first half of this year. Uh, and you know, if we get that, um, loosening the reins on, on yield curve control, we think there is scope for, uh, Japanese yields to move quite a lot higher from where they are today. But we, but we see that as, as a positive, to be honest, in terms of um, a, a normalization of uh, of things in the Japanese economy, yeah. rather than being a negative for, for risk assets, um, which you might typically think of um, uh, as being the case, but but actually as part of the, if you like, the healing and, and improvement um, uh, in things in Japan. And, and, you know, I move away from this idea that Japan is made up of this sort of zombie companies that only survive because of low interest rates and so on and so forth, um, uh, that that hopefully has been consigned to the past. Okay, yeah, and that's with this, these corporate reforms we see in M and A reforms, that sort of thing, yeah. Correct. So that's right. Yeah. No, no, and, and yeah, reforms, you know, um, in terms of boards and so on and so forth. So, no, it's, 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 I think it's an interesting story. I mean, Japan yeah. has been under-owned um, by the market for so long, not, you know, unreasonably, uh, perhaps you might argue. Uh, and so I think, you know, that, that, that provides good opportunity. Okay, and um, any regions you're kind of straying from? Um, we've already mentioned China. Yeah, so I mean, it's in terms of our um, uh, equity views, that's probably where our largest uh, underweight uh, is currently in, in, in the emerging market space. But the emerging mar- market space is at an index level is so dominated by China, given the size, obviously. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, I said it before, we, we remain pretty concerned about the sort of structural um, backdrop yeah. uh, for China. You know, what they need to work through uh, in terms of uh, essentially this debt deleveraging process mm-hmm. um, is going to take um, many, many years. Uh, their concerns, I think, um, and in terms of what the government is more focused on, what President Xi is more focused on, uh, is around national security and self-sufficiency uh, rather than economic growth, which of course for China, that's all it was for so long was economic growth. Of course, yeah. And, and we don't think they're in that space anymore. Uh, and so that makes, um, makes us very cautious, uh, around Chinese assets. Uh, it is of course a very big market though. Is there kind of any sectors within it that, that you, you would stay interested in? Uh, look, I mean, we'd always be prepared to, you know, um, consider, you know, if you like more short-term or tactical um, yep. views, we don't have any particular at the moment, I wouldn't say, um, uh, but yeah, I mean. I guess what I'd say in, in terms of the, the the biggest risk, I guess, to our underweight view is not so much around a sort of tactical sector um, a view for China, but actually it's when the authorities come out with um, a particular policy, which was yeah. flagged, for example, this week, yeah. uh, that they are going to uh, apparently uh, strongly encourage, um, maybe even more than strongly encourage, mm-hmm. 
um, direct purchases uh, into the market by uh, by the state-owned enterprises right. um, and use some of the FX reserves as well. So, you know, I think it's really challenging when you have, um, you know, what is kind of a very manipulated um, market to, to hold sort of strong fundamental views. Yeah, yeah, well, things can change very quickly and exactly. it can be quite unexpected as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sure. Um, just finishing off, Mick, um, what are the sort of big risks or hazards you might be keeping an eye on this year? Um, one thing perhaps worth discussing, there's going to be a lot of political elections this year. Yes. I was wondering about something you keep an eye on. I think it's forty-five percent of the world is going to the polls this year. Yeah, it, 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 so many people have, have tried to calculate this number as to what what is the number. I've, I've heard forty-five, I've heard sixty-five, I've heard all, all sorts, but it's a lot. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the day, it's a big number. Um, a, a lot of the world is going to some form of election this year. Of course, the fact that India has elections this year makes a big difference to the percentage number. Sure. Um, but no, look, I mean. Uh, Obviously, I would say the one that you know most people are going to be um, focused on uh, is the is the US, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, already I guess more or less got to the situation where it's fairly clear that you know Trump will be uh, the Republican candidate, mm-hmm. uh, and you know based on current polling uh, at least, uh, you know current polling would suggest he would win if the election was held today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. It's very complex with the uh, electoral college system in the US. Uh, it's not just about who's the most popular candidate and wins the most votes, as we know. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's more complicated than that. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we probably think it's down to two or three states. Um, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania um, Wisconsin, Michigan. Whoever wins those three probably wins the presidency. And at the moment, Trump's polling in the lead uh, in, in, in all of those states. Now, I think you know, one, one sort of caveat to that is, of course, the election isn't going to be held today. It's going to be in November and, and things can change between now and then. And, and typically, the incumbent does get a bit of a benefit uh, as you get closer to, to the actual polling day. Uh, and, you know, that could be enough to, to make it, um, you know, much closer or, or even change the, the balance uh, in, in favor of Biden. But, you know, what I, what I think, you know, all investors are probably thinking to themselves as well, if we do have a change of, uh, president, a second round, Trump 2.0. Uh, how much does it look like the first one? Um, well, that's what some people have mentioned to me recently. They're actually both kind of known quantities now. When Trump was elected in 2016, nobody was quite sure what we were going to get. And you could probably say the same Biden 2020, but we have actually had a dose of both already. We have. And, and you know, Trump's not shy in saying what his policies are going to be. And it's, it is kind of more of the same. So, you know, he said 10% tariffs on everyone. Yeah. So that's just kind of more of what he previously did. Yeah. He said tax tax cuts, and that's what he did previously as as well. Um, you know, he's talked about taking the US out of NATO, which he talked about previously. Yeah. And yeah. So, so on and so forth. So you're right. Many of the things he's saying sound very similar to when he was actually in office. Um, I think the... Perhaps the important difference, though, is the economic backdrop isn't the same as when he was in office, uh, and we've just been through uh, obviously a period of um, you know high inflation. Um, the U.S. is already um, running very large uh, fiscal deficits, projected to do so yeah. uh, for another four years under a Biden presidency as well, yeah. uh, and that you know those could be uh, even larger uh, under a Trump presidency. You know. It, I, I think I think the you know, it, it was it ended up being a very positive event for markets. The previous Trump presidency, you know, uh, equity markets ultimately ended up loving it because of all the tax cuts and so on. 
there was a lot of volatility, of course, because of um, the way in which almost ugly he communicated in the yeah, tariffs yeah. and so on. Uh, but ultimately, it was a positive. It's it's not so clear cut. I think this time around, um, you know, if you're sort of potentially restoking inflation through, um, you know, domestic policies, I think you know the Federal Reserve are going to be, you know, um, quite concerned about you know what the impact of that could be uh, as well. So, so I think that that's that's kind of an important uh, difference. Um, but yes, there are, are of course other elections here in the UK. We have uh, election coming up later this year. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, I would say the polling is more clear cut, shall we say, at this point in, in time, in terms of uh, it being a, a likely Labour victory. Uh, of course, the the, the the sort of fiscal situation that Labour will inherit uh, at that point uh, will be pretty constraining for them, mm-hmm. I think. And so, I think, yeah, it's unlikely we see dramatic policy shift, even with a change of government. Okay, sure. Okay, well, that's um, 2024 summed up, Mick. Thanks very much for that. Maybe you'll come back in 2025 and we'll review what we've discussed today. But um, thanks very much for dropping in. Appreciate it. Thanks very much.